This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Now, just in case you live under a rock, I'll tell you that the 2008 presidential race is already well underway. And whatever we might or might not do on Election Day, and I'm thinking of you, people who vote for American Idol but not for the highest office in the nation, it is safe to say that the presidential race is something of a national obsession. And for good reason, right? After all, the presidency is the most important, most influential, most powerful political job out there. It's the biggest thing you can imagine, right? Well, maybe not. While we might be interested in the presidential race more than we're interested in pretty much most of the others combined, that's not because the office is, at least officially, that much more important than the others. And how important the president is, and what he, or maybe soon she, does is something that's shifted over time. It's likely to change in the future, too, as we change as a nation. Here today to unravel some of the more puzzling aspects of the American presidency is Jeffrey Cohen. Cohen is a professor of political science at Fordham, and he is a scholar of the presidency through several presidents now. He joined me in the studio this week for a chat about the American presidency over time, about what the president's job is, exactly, and about why he himself finds the whole thing so fascinating. Jeffrey Cohen, welcome. Thank you. Now, tell me, how is the presidency different from what it was, say, 40 years ago? It's a little hard to compare the presidency just 40 years ago. So let's go back a little bit further to the 1930s. And I think we can divide the presidency up into two large historical eras. The first goes up to about the time that Franklin Roosevelt became president, and then we have from Franklin Roosevelt afterwards. Political scientists like to call this second period the modern presidency. And the major distinguishing characteristic is that the president has become much more active in public policymaking, lobbying Congress for legislation, proposing policies to the public, trying to lead the public, and in general being much more active in government than was the case before. So what did the president used to do? For the most part, the conception of the presidency prior to Franklin Roosevelt was to be more of a clerk than a leader. Presidents would you know, sign legislation. They would carry out the dictates of Congress. They provided a symbol for the nation. And in times of emergency, such as wars and other kinds of major national catastrophes, would take the lead. But for the most part, during most of U.S. history up until the 1930s, the Congress was the lead institution for making public policy, and the president was a secondary institution. So why did it change when it did? There's a, a lot of possible reasons for this. One may have to do with the Depression itself, which caused such a huge shock to the nation. One of the, the attributes of the Depression that made it so different from other economic cycles is that the Depression lasted a long time. It got worse over time instead of getting better. It was very, very deep, much deeper than anything else that had happened before. And it began to undermine people's faith in a capitalist economy. That focused a lot of people's attention on the agencies of government to try to rectify the problem. And the presidency became a natural focus of attention. There's one person there as opposed to a Congress with hundreds of leaders. Other things that happened around this time period 
were also the sort of the nationalization of the U.S. economy. If you look at the economy in earlier periods of time, you had a lot of local and regional economies. But with the development of the railroad system, communication systems, national corporations, you had a fully integrated national economy. That means that what affects the economy in one place would have rippling effects throughout the entire nation. And that meant that instead of state and local governments taking care of economic problems, people were looking to the federal government to take care of economic problems. A third ingredient has to be the mass media. Presidents have radio. They can speak to the nation, focus attention on themselves in ways that was not possible before. We had telegraphs. We had national newspapers in a way because of the telegraphs and the wire services. But people could only read what the president said or read what people said about the president. With radio, people could experience the president as a personality. All of these things coalesced in the 1930s. Uh, together. And I think it's the combination of these factors that led to the development of this more activist presidency. Now, let me move forward a little bit into the present. Tell me what you think about what's been going on with the state's primary dates this time around. The primary system in 2008 has developed probably in ways that nobody would have envisioned. The basic gut reaction is that more democracy is good. You, know, you involve people in the selection of their political leaders. But uh, now what we're having is states moving their primaries up to be very early in the contest. One of the motivations to moving up so early is to be taken more seriously in the selection of delegates. States are afraid that if they're one of the last states to hold a primary, the decision will already have been made by the time that the primary gets to their states. So states like Michigan have felt that small rural states like Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina have been dominating the early phases of the primary. That selects for politicians that play better in those less urban states. And Michigan, residents of Michigan feel that their issues are not being dealt with as seriously on a national level because they don't play such a big role early in the primary system. They're moving up early is an attempt to become a larger voice in that process. I have to say I've never understood that, and you cleared it up for me, so thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well. Um, Now, in this race, you say that both parties have competitive races going on at the same time, and you say that that's something that's really interesting. What is going on there? It's quite common or at least it has become somewhat more common in American politics the last 30 or 40 years where the vice president becomes the heir apparent and is allowed to run for the presidency after the president leaves office. Because of Dick Cheney saying that he would not be a candidate for the presidency and George W. Bush having served his two terms, both parties have competitive races at the same time. This should generate a fair amount of excitement among the public because we really have no idea who the candidates are going to be. There's a lot of candidates in both parties. No candidate except for possibly Hillary Clinton looks like a breakout star in this. And and her polls and, and other numbers are not so high that she's locked it up yet and we've not had a primary yet. 
One other thing that is kind of interesting is that because of the low poll ratings for George W. Bush, because of the Iraq war, to some degree Republicans are distancing themselves from George W. Bush, and that creates certain tensions within the Republican Party as well. There's a sort of a tightrope that conservative politicians have to walk right now because the very low poll ratings for George W. Bush in part can be read as the rejection of his policies. Democrats are in a better position. Democrats can run against the president, pick up the liberal and left-wingers in the nation, but also pick up the people who are just discontented with the administration but are more middle of the road. The conservative politician needs to maintain that conservative base, which means that they can't run too far away from George W. Bush, but there's not enough voters out there right now for them to win a national election, so they also have to appeal to a more moderate base of people. And that that makes it rather difficult and delicate for them because they can't just outright reject George W. Bush, but at the same time, they can't run as a legacy of George W. Bush. It's a much more difficult position that they're in than Democrats, who all they have to do is complain about Bush. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest this week is Jeffrey Cohen. Cohen is a professor of political science at Fordham, and he's a longtime scholar of the American presidency and the press coverage that surrounds it. Let's return to our conversation. One of the things that you work on quite a lot is uh, news coverage of the presidency. Tell me what the presidential news subsystem is and how it comes into play in today's presidential environment. The presidential news subsystem is kind of a fancy way of a political scientist talking about the interactions between the president, the news media, and public opinion. One of the things that's been um, rather important over the last 25 years or so is that this presidential news system has changed in structure, and that's altered the way that the president, the public, and the news media have interacted with each other. Now, if I can just give you a sense of some of the trends over time the last 25 years, the news media are now much more competitive than they've ever been. If you go back 25 years ago or a little bit further than that, 30 years ago, the three networks, especially with news, dominated the show. The New York Times was the most important voice, and the network's pretty much followed the New York Times. Now we have a variety and a diversity of voices in the media like we've not had in a very, very long time. It's a much more decentralized system. The networks do not have the audience size that they used to have. Newspaper readership is down. And some news outlets may actually be a bit more partisan in their news presentation. Fox News, for instance, has gotten a reputation for being rather conservative. They complain about CNN is tilting a little bit too much in the liberal direction and and the like. But um, and one of the things that's happened, I don't want to blame Fox or CNN or even claim that they've gotten this way, but with a splintering of the audience, 
it's reasonable for producers to create market niches and to create a brand. In the 1970s and 60s, ABC, NBC, and CBS basically were the same thing. They gave you the same news. They didn't have to worry too much about losing audience to something else. With all the competition in the news media now, one way of securing an audience and keeping it from leaving is to create an identifiable brand that people can rely on that's different from everybody else's brand. And that's a lot of what's going on. Now, that has a lot of implications for the public because the public can self-select the kind of news they want to hear which means that they may not be getting a full range of opinions. It's not necessarily that they got a full range of opinions before. They kind of got a mainstream opinion before. But now they may be getting a kind of opinion that is reinforcing their own political attitudes. So what are the implications for how a president would lead then, given those changes? Actually, there's several important implications that follow from this. When the news media splinters and begins to create these market niches and these brand identities, people begin to view parts of the news media as biased. A conservative who watches Fox News, who may get his or her political orientations reinforced and strengthened, might say that the New York Times or CBS or CNN is politically biased. This undermines the credibility that people have towards the news media because wherever you stand in the political system, you see some of the news media that you can say is politically biased. And there may be some truth to this. One of the things that we see in polls is that the public increasingly has come to view the news media as biased, as lacking credibility, as not being trustworthy, and people do not have much confidence in the news media. Now, If people don't have a whole lot of confidence in the news, since the news is their major source of information about what's going on, they may wind up disbelieving, discounting what they hear. And the news as a linkage between average people and what government is doing gets frayed. And this undermines the quality of democracy. This has actually pretty big implications for the president also because if the president is trying to use the news media to reach the public, depending on the media that he uses, people may tie him into this lack of trustworthiness. But I think more important or the the larger effect is that there's not one large homogenous audience that the president can reach like he once used to. Instead, it looks like what is happened to the mass public is that we have one segment of the public which are news junkies. They go to news outlets that kind of reinforce their political predispositions. Then we have the broad middle who doesn't watch news at all. They're watching cable entertainment shows and they've basically dropped out of the system to some degree. The president can't reach them. The problem that the president has now is that he has a lot of people with very strong political views. He's not going to change the minds of people on the opposite side of the political aisle. The people whose minds he possibly could change because they were more moderate politically, they're more likely to follow given a reasonable leadership, are just not there. So presidents are focusing on their base of support. 
which means that presidents are not the big national leaders that they once were in the 60s and 70s. They're more leaders of a part of the nation. With regard to the news coverage of the president, or I guess of the presidency, what should we be worried about? And what about how things are now should we be glad about, if anything? Okay. Let, let's do what we should be worried about. Um, one of the things that we should be worried about is that for the average person who's not real interested in politics, the president is the most accessible part of the political system. It's an individual who people can relate to on an individual level. They can like or dislike the characteristics of the of the president. But also the president as one person who speaks for government can focus people's attentions on policy issues and galvanize political support and mobilize people into the political system, create opinions, help people to develop opinions about public policies. That's lost to some degree in this more splintered political system. That means that we do not have as broad base of a participatory democracy as we might have had. A second issue is that when presidents are trying to lead the nation as a whole, because most people are kind of moderate, moderate presidents will often do better with the public as a whole. Nowadays, if the president is going to gain public support, he's going to gain public support from his wing of the political spectrum. That wing is going to be somewhat more politically extreme. So presidents, in order to mobilize them, are going to be more politically extreme, if nothing more than talking about the kind of issues that matters to people who are definitely liberal or definitely conservative as opposed to people that are middle of the road. Um, even if the president is not taking more politically extreme positions, if we add up all the positions that they take, they just may decide that I'm going to take these three liberal positions because I want to speak to, to the liberals because those are the people that are going to support me or vice versa, conservatives. That makes a president look more extreme. And it looks to be the case that the public does not like presidents who are extremists compared to being moderate. So there's sort of, um, again, a public interest notion of democracy that gets a little bit weakened. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just ahead this morning on WFUV, it's Cityscape. On this week's show, we will hear all about advertising in the city, love it or hate it. That's Cityscape with George Bodarkey this morning at 7.30. This morning on Fordham Conversations, we are talking with Jeffrey Cohen about the American presidency. Cohen's a professor of political science at Fordham, and he is a longtime scholar of the presidency. Let's hear the rest of that conversation. Now, it, it kind of seems to me like in America, we, we like presidents more than people in some other countries do. We carve their faces, for example, in the sides of mountains and things. It seems like we sort of like a, a strong leader to a pretty high degree. Is that true throughout sort of the presidented world, or is that, is that an American thing? This, this is a, an interesting question. In democracies, there's basically two forms of government. There's presidential systems and there's parliamentary systems. In the parliamentary systems, you have a prime minister who is somewhat analogous to the Speaker of the House in the United States. In a lot of countries, prime ministers have become much more individualized or personalized to their publics because of election systems, because of the mass media. You know, so we have you know, Tony Blair, a prime minister in Britain, 
who's become a celebrity in Britain on the magnitude of American presidents. Uh, another thing to be thinking about with presidents is that presidential systems are a little bit like monarchies. Now, and, and some people have, have called presidential systems as sort of, in a way, constitutional monarchies without parliaments, where you sort of fuse the head of government and the head of state in one place. So it's um, you know, both prime minister and king in the same place. If we want to think about presidents a little bit as being king-like, then you have 5,000 years of human history that has had kings that people look up to and think that they need. So I don't think that Americans are necessarily all that different from other places. One of the things that, that we need to you know, keep in perspective here is that in the public's mind, the president is an extraordinarily powerful political figure. In the Constitution, he's not. I mean, he's actually pretty weak that way. So there's kind of a mismatch in what the public thinks the president can do and expects the president to do and what the president can actually get done. Has the president become more of a figure in our minds than, than he or she once was? Oh, gosh. Um, too bad that we couldn't take public opinion polls when George Washington or Abraham Lincoln was president. To some degree, because of the mass media, because of increased literacy, because of the publicity operations in the White House and the way that we select presidential candidates through primary systems, presidents have become much bigger figures in the public imagination. But there are times in Earlier times in U.S. history, there were presidents who played this great big role in the public imagination as well. George Washington clearly held the public imagination, and he spent a whole lot of time trying to create an image for the public. I mean, it was an image of rectitude, of somebody who was responsible towards power, of somebody who gave voice to public concerns without necessarily using the power of publicity to get what he wanted. Abraham Lincoln was another president who was very important in the public imagination. And I guess one way of thinking about this is to read about the days after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. His um, funeral train traveled around the United States, stopping off in many, many different towns so that people could go to the train station and see the train come by. For some reason, Lincoln became a very beloved figure in a lot of the United States. Getting assassinated made him a mythic figure at the same time. So we don't need the mass public. We have a whole lot more politicians, presidents now, who have become a mythic, not necessarily quite so beloved. Like, uh, like Nixon. Well, Nixon, yeah, quite a mythic figure, not beloved whatsoever. Uh, Bill Clinton is another one, you know, who's a, a rather mythic figure. Some people love the guy, some people hate him. Ronald Reagan has turned into a mythical kind of figure. You know, it's 20 years since he's been president. People forget a little bit about him, but he's had a very large halo effect on people. And then there's been Franklin Roosevelt, who's maybe you know, the greatest figure of all time. But some of the lesser presidents of the modern era, the Jimmy Carters, the Gerald Fords, may be more important because of the mass media, because of the publicity operations of the White House, than presidents 
of comparable presidencies 100 years ago. This is something that we talked about before, and it might seem like a strange question, but how does the presidency matter in our system? You know, what does the president do? How is he powerful? And is that different from other systems that have presidents or prime ministers? On one level, I don't think there's just a whole lot of differences here. One of the things that executives can do, you know, whether they're presidents or prime ministers or kings or dictators, is mobilize political systems and move them. Congresses are not really good at this. Congresses are good at making public policy, debating issues, making people feel like they are included. But presidents can point a direction. They can focus public attention. To give you one example, think about September 12th. 2001. One of the important things that George W. Bush did is he galvanized the nation in a particular direction and he gave a label to this, the war on terror. He decided that there was a policy course that was needed. He had a shocked and troubled public that didn't know what in the world to do and he gave it a focus of attention and a direction to move. It's come under a lot of criticism years afterwards, but there was a huge amount of public and political support for the war on terror, for his identifying our issues with Islamic terrorists as a war on terror, uh, which is something um, that was quite different from what happened before. So this is what I mean by galvanizing and mobilizing a political system. He changed direction. He changed direction for his political party. When he was elected president, the idea that the United States would intervene in another nation and build a democracy from the ground up was anathema to Republicans. Now it's become a foundation for what the Republican Party is about, at least with the exercise in Iraq. So there's been a tremendous change there. This completely realigned the way that people think about issues, not little issues, but great big issues that cost a huge amount of money a lot of public energy, and the like. But what is the president's job exactly? Well, there's the narrow reading of the Constitution that says that the president is there to faithfully execute the laws, which basically means to make sure that the bureaucracy is doing what the laws have intended. Uh, He's there to veto legislation from Congress that he doesn't like, which makes him kind of the third legislative branch. So we can have this narrow reading, but beginning, not necessarily just beginning only with Franklin Roosevelt, but becoming much more systematically since Franklin Roosevelt, presidents have seen their offices being much larger in trying to frame political debate, to energize the political system, to set the agenda and become a political leader. Not just somebody who's a housekeeper for government, but an actual political leader. I will ask you one more question, and I'll close with this. Why do you think that the presidency is something that it's worth studying? Oh, it's just the most fascinating office. But, But politics to me is just the most fascinating thing. I'm always telling my students, if you just read the news a little bit, if you were a novelist and you tried to make up some of the stories... Any editor would throw the book out and say, this is the most unrealistic thing I've ever heard of. But politicians, including presidents, are doing things that are extraordinary, both to the good and to the bad, depending how you read about these things. I'm, I'm not talking just about scandals, 
But um, in terms of, uh, think about George W. Bush. I want to use him because he's a very controversial president right now. George W. Bush is basically an inarticulate man in public. But uh, the couple of days after September 11th, when he gave his speech at the Washington Cathedral about September 11th, it was a moving, eloquent speech. It was a really a tremendous speech. It's going to go down as one of the great speeches in history or one of the most momentous speeches in history. If you wrote a novel about an inarticulate man who can do this kind of thing, I'm sure that publishers are just going to throw this out. Nobody would believe it. But it happens in the real world. It's just fascinating, both the heights that politicians sometimes rise to and the lows. The other side of it is, as a political scientist, I think that government and politics is just really important to our lives. It's very meaningful. It's nice to live in a democracy, for instance. We get things that people who don't live in democracies is all about. I like studying politicians because of the impact that they have on the way we live as well. Well, there you go. Jeffrey Cohen is a professor in Fordham's Political Science Department. Jeffrey Cohen, thanks so much. Oh, thank you. This is very nice to be here. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations with what I am sure is only one of many president-related conversations you'll be hearing over the next year or so. You can subscribe to our show as a podcast, or you can listen to it online in our audio archives. They're both available at our website, WFUV.org. If you have any comments or questions about the show, drop us an email. Don't wait until November 2008. We are reading them now. Our address is Fordham Conversations at WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend.